His mercy is more. That's what that song she was playing says. If you saw the words or remember the words, I hope we've sung that enough that you recognized it and thought about it and meditated on it while we were hearing that. I sat there and thought about how that, even though we didn't sing it today, we heard it played and it relates so well to what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this fifth chapter of the book of Romans. Take your Bibles and turn there with me. Two weeks ago, we were in the same passage, and, um, and then last Sunday, we took a, a week off from Romans, if you remember, had the Lord's Supper and, and looked at Psalm 62 through the whole service, literally. Read it, sang it, read it responsibly, and then preached on it, and it was, uh, it was just kind of centered around this whole idea that I'll not be shaken if my trust is in Christ. If my focus is upon the one who loves me more than anybody else and cares about me more than anybody else, I'll not be shaken. And we, we talked about that and we sang that again today. And that Psalm 62 is just uh, such a powerful, powerful psalm, whether we read it or whether we sing it. Something to meditate upon and think about. But in this passage of, of 12 through 21, really, and we're really going to focus on the middle section this morning, uh, talking about uh, the contrast of the life in union with Christ in Romans 5, 17, uh, 15 through 17. But two weeks ago, when we looked at what it meant to be in union with Christ, I, I saw some really interesting um, expressions out there in the congregation when I said, and I've only got 13 points. And everybody kind of looked at me like, okay, I didn't pack a lunch today. Uh, well, it wasn't quite as lengthy as that would sound like. I I have been influenced through the years by the Puritan preachers, and I love the Puritan preachers, and, and, and some of them will get to the point where they say, and now 45thly in their sermons. I've not done that yet, and I'll try not to today. As a matter of fact, I won't have nearly that many today. But our, our passage is verses 15 through 17, just three verses that I want us to kind of concentrate on today. If you remember that two weeks ago, we saw that this, this text, this passage of of 12 through 21, is really very naturally divided into three sections or three paragraphs. The first one, you have Adam and Christ introduced. Adam as being responsible for sin and death, and also as a pattern of the one who is yet to come. Now, somebody asked me after that sermon, how is Adam a pattern of Christ? He fell. He, he was the one who brought sin and death into the world. How is he a pattern of Christ? He's a pattern of imputation that we talked about just a bit. We'll talk about a lot more in the book of Romans. In other words, in his fall as the federal head of the human race, in his falling and disobedience, sin entered the world and all his, his uh, uh, descendants after him were, were cursed with, the, uh, with indwelling sin, with original sin. And so in Adam's sin, that sin is imputed to every other person. And Paul says it's proved by the fact that we all sin. There's not a one of us that says, well, I've been able to keep pure enough, clean enough, righteous enough, and not sinned in all my life. If anybody says that, John will tell us later in the New Testament that he or she is a liar and the truth is not in them if they say they don't have any sin. Sin is just a reality of life uh, for every human being who is in Adam. And we're all in Adam. And so he's... Paul says he's a, he's a pattern, he's a picture of the one who is yet to come. In verse 14, that is Christ Jesus our Lord, whereby not sin will be imputed, but whereby in Him forgiveness and grace 
and righteousness will be imputed, uh, imputed to us in Christ Jesus. So in Adam, we have imputed sin. In Christ, we have imputed righteousness. You're going to hear a lot about that in the next few weeks. Then Paul said, secondly, in this, this middle section that we're going to kind of look at mostly today, he says, Adam and Christ are contrasted. In each of these three verses, the work of Christ is said to be either not like Adam's or much more successful than Adam's. Well, Adam's was pretty successful in bringing sin to the whole human race, but he said Christ's work is much more successful. It's greater than that first Adam as he is the last Adam. And then thirdly, in the last verses there, 18 through 21, Adam and, and Christ are, con, are compared somewhat. And where you see the 19, 18, 19, and 21, the just as, so also kind of uh, uh, expression that, that the Apostle Paul makes that. For through one man's deed, that is Adam's disobedience or Christ's obedience, many have either been cursed or blessed. And Paul makes that very, very clear. So that's kind of by way of reminder of what we looked at two weeks ago. Let's look at our passage today, verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much much more have the grace of God and the free gift by by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one uh, trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in, uh, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, there, there are several things that the Apostle Paul is wanting us to be sure we see here. We talked about it two weeks ago, the idea of through Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything that is talked about in relation to peace with God, redemption in Christ, everything that is talked about in really the whole of, of the book of Romans, but in this section in particular we're looking at, is, is predicated upon the fact that it is through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's through His good works. It's through His righteousness. It's through His death. It's through His work on the cross. His, as Paul said in chapter 3, His propitiation of our sins, His bearing the, the, the wrath of our sins upon Himself and diverting that wrath away from us. What a glorious truth that is. But Paul says, I want you to understand that everything that is, is through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not through your good deeds. It's not through your religiosity. It's not through you giving an hour of your week to God in in a time of of coming to church and either worshiping or not worshiping. You can't be in church and not worship. You should be in church and worship as you focus on that. But but, but that doesn't give you any effective salvation in your life just because you come to church, just because you're religious. And Paul is making that so very clear. The pagan, the religious person, the moralist, they all stand on equal footing because of the fall. I've called this message the contrast of life in union with Christ. 
because of the way Paul sets out three major contrasts. But if you look through that, that passage, you see many contrasts. It, it's really filled with contrast. He, he makes the contrast between the trespass and the gift. Between the trespass and the gift. He says the trespass was carried out by Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and we live in a day, I realize, when the, the historicity of Adam and Eve is questioned and, and poo-pooed and, and, and laughed at and everything else. But I want you to know the, the historicity, the reality of Adam and Eve in the garden falling by eating that fruit from which they were forbidden is an actual fact of history and theology. That's important to understand. It's, it's not a matter of, oh, we've got this myth, we've got this legend, we've got this idea. If Adam and Eve are not historical, Christ's death was foolish on the cross. You've you got to see that. You've got to understand that. If, if, they, if their fall was not real in space and time, as Francis Schaeffer puts it, real in space and time, then Christ's death on the cross has no effectiveness in space and time. It's just a tragedy and not a salvation at all. Because what did they save us from? What, what did it save us from? It saved us from absolutely nothing if there's not the real, true historicity of Adam and Eve. So, so Paul wants us to see that the trespass by Adam and Eve versus the gift, the free gift that comes by grace in Jesus Christ is, is real and effective. And it's more effective, if you will, in the lives of those who trust Christ than the fall was and the trespass was in the garden in the person's life before they are in Christ. Do you follow that? So it's the contrast of trespass and gift. There's a second contrast there, and it's death versus eternal life. Death is not a spiritual death is not an eternal thing for those who are in Christ. It is an eternal thing for those who are still in Adam. And it remains so. But Paul says, I want you to understand that in this gift that that comes later through Christ, in contrast to the trespass that came through Adam, in in this gift comes eternal life. And and he says it's not like the old, the, the free gift is not like the result of one man's fall that brought about condemnation. But through, trust, uh, through, through uh, following many trespasses, it brought justification, eternal life, a right relationship with the living God. The relationship that he started out this chapter with by saying, and for, in Christ, through Christ, we have peace with God. We're no longer at war. We're no longer enemies. We are at peace with God. So you've got death versus eternal life. A third contrast Paul throws in there is condemnation versus justification. We all stand condemned in Adam. We all stand condemned in Adam. We're not condemned specifically for Adam's sin. We are condemned and held accountable for our own sin. But it's because of Adam's sin that we sin. It's because of Adam's sin that that sin is a reality in our life. As I said two weeks ago, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're sin because of that inherited sin from Adam. But Paul says, I want you to understand that in Adam there is condemnation, but in Christ there is justification, that legal term. That idea that we stand before the great judgment bar of God, the, the creator, the sustainer, 
the Redeemer of all, and, and we stand before His, His judgment bar. He judged, and we as the, con- the, the con- condemned and accused, and God declares us in Christ not guilty. Nothing greater than that, than to know that we stand not guilty before the God of the universe. Then he contrasts the one versus the many. The one trespass, the one sin, and the many who will come to faith in Christ because of the work of Christ, the gift of God in grace on the cross. It's great to see that Paul says, I want you to understand, and Paul's not thinking of numbers here, I don't think. Don't don't get confused here and say, well, is Paul saying that more will be in Christ than are in Adam in the final analysis, that, that more will be in Adam than in Christ, or the more, the many, the one. He's not, he's not worrying here. He's not thinking here about specific numbers. He's just saying God's grace, God's work uh, will affect the many. And I think that will be myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands and millions of millions perhaps that, have come, that come because of that free gift that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He obviously makes the contrast between sin and righteousness. Sin versus righteousness. Sin is the problem. Righteousness is something that we do not have in ourselves. Righteousness is something that we cannot gen up from within and somehow make it happen and say, I'm going to be righteous, I'm going to be holy, I'm going to be perfect if, it's, if it kills me. And that's exactly what it will do. It'll kill you. But you can't do that. Righteousness comes through the free gift. The gift that is from God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, applied by the Holy Spirit that brings about newness of life and that defeats sin, crushes sin, destroys sin overcomes death, defeats death. The great Puritan writer John Owen wrote a a whole treatise. It's about 800 pages. Pick it up and read it over the weekend. Uh, And the title of it is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And and boy, there's there's no greater picture of what takes place at the cross when sin versus righteousness takes place and when Christ dies on the cross when he gives himself as a sacrifice and as a substitute for all who believe at that point there is the death of death in the death of Christ and life comes through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit there's the obvious contrast between Adam and Christ the first Adam and the last Adam the, the one who came by the, the first creation, special creation by God, fiat be it creation by God, where he said, let there be light, and there was light, where he separated the waters from the land by his own, just the power of his word, where he created animals and, and all sorts of creatures in the sea, and, and where he made vegetation, and where he did all these things just by, by speaking it, and then he comes to that final act of creation, and he creates man in his own image. Adam is the first Adam. He's the Adam of the first creation. Christ is referred to in the scriptures as the last Adam or the second Adam. But the last Adam is more effective, more 
accurate, I think. He's the last Adam, and that is as Adam was of the first creation, what I call the old creation. Christ is the last Adam of the new creation that comes through the power of God working in a man or a woman's life to make all things new, to give them that righteousness of Christ, to impute to them that righteousness of Christ. So there are six quick comparisons that, uh, or contrasts that the Apostle Paul makes in those verses. He'll go on in verses 18 through 21, and we'll talk about those later, to, talk, to compare disobedience with obedience, sinners versus those who have been made righteous, and law versus grace. Because when you get right down to it, the thing he wants us to see is that what comes to us through Christ Jesus our Lord, justification, righteousness, all that, what comes to us through Christ Jesus our Lord is a matter of grace. The, the final idea that Paul has given us in this whole chapter of chapter 5 is, is that in reality, the, he wants us to see the triumph of grace over law and the ultimate reign, R-E-I-G-N, the reign of grace over all of God's creation. Paul said, don't you see this? That last verse, 21, he says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The idea of grace is all through this. The idea of grace is the, the heartbeat of the, of the whole book of Romans. By grace, Paul said to the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith, through the instrumentality of faith. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. No one can boast about it. We're humbled before God because of it, and we look to Him and Him alone. Paul says you've got to understand this. This whole concept of grace, it supports the whole position with which Romans 5 began that, through one, that, that the one who has been joined to Christ by faith is secure in that relationship because they have peace with God. That's how he began this chapter. I love how Lloyd-Jones puts it when he says about grace is that grace is superlative generosity of God. Grace is superlative generosity of God. What do, you, what do you think about when you think about grace? Do you like many people just think about, well, I know that by grace we're saved. It's, it's only by grace that we're saved. and We know that. I know that we, we sing hymns like uh, grace that is greater than our sin or, or, or the 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 epitome of the songs of grace by John Newton, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we sing that. And we know that. We could probably all sing it without words on the screen. I could have Beth come to the piano and start playing, and we could sing probably all the verses because we that's just a great hymn, a well-known hymn. Pop stars have made the hymn known. They have carried the hymn out, uh, you know, recorded the hymn or whatever. I mean, it's a hymn that's known well, but despite all of this, there are today in most churches, I'm convinced, around the country and around the world, only a small percentage of people who really believe in grace, much less appreciate it. 
even much less understand what we mean when we sing amazing grace. Amazing grace. They, they give lip service to it. They sing songs about it and they're, they're, happy to, they're happy to say I'm saved by grace alone, thank goodness. But to really appreciate it, love it, and understand it is a whole nother matter. We know we're saved by grace apart from works. We, we quote that and we even named a church after it, didn't we? Grace, you, you're in it right now. That's what I'm talking about, where you're sitting. Grace, Baptist, church. That's where they stop. If, if they were to tell the truth about their understanding of grace, they would probably say, it's kind of a subject that's kind of boring. The reason I think it's kind of boring is because just in normal conversation, it seems among the body, it's rare that we talk about it. Well, we talk about it from the pulpit. We talk about it in our Sunday school classes. We talk about it in our Bible studies. We talk about it uh, as we sing it. But, but when you start talking to somebody, well, well, just what do you think about when you think about grace? You get real quiet. We talk about the weather. Talk about Wildcat basketball. We talk about our favorite football team. I won't mention one. But we can, we, can, we can talk about all sorts of things in the confines of church even. But when we get down to the reality of just let's talk about grace, it, it gets a little scary. It's boring. That's, that's a theology topic. That's a doctrine. We don't... We don't talk doctrine, we want real life and boy, basketball and football and weather and all that. That's real life. I love what J.I. Packer noted in talking about such people. Hear what he has to say. Packer says their conception of grace is not so much debased as it is non existent. The thought really means nothing to them. It's, it, it does not touch their experience at all. Talk to them about the church's heating or last year's financial statement of the church, and they are with you all at once. But speak to them about the realities to which the word grace points, and their attitude is one of deferential blankness. They don't accuse you of talking nonsense. They do not doubt that your words have meaning, but that they feel that whatever it is you're talking about is beyond them. And the longer they have lived without it, the surer they are that at their stage of life, they do not really need it. They're convinced that it, it's real, in this, in this theoretical world of doctrine and theology. But in the area of practicality, the grace of God is, is not effective, if you will. Now, when you hear Paul talking about, in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. When you read back in the first part of this chapter, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we now stand, Paul is not talking about just an act of grace that brings about salvation or, or justification or reconciliation. He's talking about a fact of grace that is a part of our life as we pursue Christ every single day. It's grace that protects us from sin. It's grace that protects us from immorality. It's grace that protects us from just demanding our own way and saying, I want what I want and I want it right now. I don't care what anybody else wants or what anybody else says. It's all about me. It's grace that empowers our life. It's grace that strengthens us as we stand in it. I love that. I love that picture Paul used. I mean, he's drawing a word picture, folks. Get it in your mind. We have obtained access, entrance. The door's been flung open. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of seeing the glory of God one day face to face. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God being worked out in our lives and being visible in our lives daily. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in standing in grace because when temptation comes, and temptation will come, grace is what allows us to do what Paul told young Timothy, flee from lust, flee from temptation. Flee from the enemy trying to bring you down and destroy your life with sin. Because sin is destructive. Righteousness and His holiness is restorative. That's why it's so important, even as I prayed in, in, in our prayer time this morning, Lord, Lead us to confession. Lead us to repentance. And it's grace that will lead us to do that, folks. It's God's grace at work in our lives. Last week we came to the Lord's table, and every, time, every, every third Sunday when we come to the Lord's table, every time we come to that table we talk about examination. Well, Paul is concerned here in, in, in Romans 5 with, with us examining who we are in Christ and knowing who we are in Christ and knowing what Christ has provided for us. And if we are in Christ rather than in Adam, we have those resources to be changed, not just when we're saved, but to be changed daily by His work and by His grace. Becoming more and more like the one whom we worship, who, in, in whose image we were created in the garden. Grace, grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. And if Beth played, my, my sins, they are many. His mercy, His grace is more. But if we are bored with grace, 
If we just see it as, okay, yeah, it's, it's church talk. If we are bored with grace, folks, we are bored with Christ. If we're bored with Christ, we ought to do a hard examination as to whether or not we are still in Adam or if indeed we are in Christ. It's hard to say. It's probably hard to hear. But it's, it's what Paul wants us to do here. He says, look, here's all these glorious things, glorious security that God has given to the one who is in Christ. And it's not that you get in Christ and God says, okay, I put you here in Christ by my grace. Now, good luck for the rest of your life. He so said, I put you here. I place you in Christ. Todd read, Pastor Todd read from from Colossians 2 today, that he gave us life. He did it. And what he gives us is a life that is to pursue his holiness. And to say, well, I just don't want his holiness. I want what I can do. I want his, I'll try to be as good as I can be, but I don't want his holiness. That's, that's too far. That's too high. That's too difficult. To say that is to, not, to deny the very gospel that you say you believe. There's the passion for knowing Christ. Not just knowing about Him. Not just seeing His name in a book we call the Bible. Christian life brings with it a work of grace that gives us a passion to know Christ, to walk with Christ. And to say to the lust of the world, you have no power over me because I stand in Christ Jesus. And it's through Christ Jesus that I stand. It's not my power, I'm weak. It's not my strength, I don't have any. But it's through the power and the grace and the glory of God. Don't be guilty of what Packer calls deferential blankness on the issue of grace. Paul says so many contrasts. And he, he says these so that we will see the enormity and the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me.